You're listening to the preaching ministry of Redemption Bible Church in New Braunfels, Texas, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you seek to worship Christ, walk with Christ, and work for Christ, all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, please visit redemption.bible. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming worship services. But turn in your copy of God's Word to John 8, 12 through 30. John 8, 12 through 30. Have you ever noticed that in every message I've ever preached at Redemption, it has begun with that line? Turn in your copy of God's Word to blank. Have you ever noticed that along the way? Every message, if you, uh, you know, we have the introductory things, announcement, all that stuff, but when preaching happens, it begins with that line. If you go to our website or YouTube or podcast and uh, uh, listen to any messages, that's when, after the intro starts, that's when the preaching picks up. Turn in your copy of God's Word to blank, and that's very intentional. Very intentional, for I want us every week as we come to this portion of our worship service to be amazed that we have God's very words in our hands. To to be amazed that what has not been a reality for most of human history and in many places around the globe even now, to have a personal copy of God's word in our hands. And, and, And secondly, I want us to be convinced that these are God's very words. That what we hold in our hands contained in this book is, uh, are those words that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of these books to write down that we might know God and love God and worship God and live according to His ways. And, and, and so it's out of that conviction then that we jump now to uh, uh, verse 12 in John chapter 8. For we could not say with that same conviction, turn in your copy of God's Word to uh, John 7, 53 through 8, 11, or some other portions of the, of the Scripture. But we, where we left off last week in 7, 52, we now jump to 8, uh, verse 12, because that section that we are skipping over is not in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible. We can't with conviction say that section of this story is in the Bible. It doesn't fit with the flow of the narrative, and it's not in the earliest manuscripts. It was added later uh, by scribes who who wrote this, and, and even in the manuscripts that we do have that does include it, it puts it in various sections, not always in here, but it puts it'll just insert it into John's gospel. The likelihood that it happened is, is, is high, uh, and it was passed down orally through tradition within the church, but like I said, then added by scribes later, and so that's why our Bible publishers leave that, the, this story of the woman caught in adultery here in the uh, Bible, but they rightly so put it in brackets, and your Bible even probably has a notation that says the earliest manuscripts do not include this portion. And so it's okay, you know, to read it and even to refer to it but we can't with the same authority preach it. We can't, it, it doesn't carry the same power to transform as God's word. For we aren't here this morning, or at least I hope you're not here this morning, to just hear some nice stories about Jesus. 
but eager to sit under the authority of God's word that will transform our lives. And in the same way, I'm not here, nor any man who occupies this pulpit, whether this summer or anytime, we're not here to just tell you nice stories about Jesus, but with unapologetic proclamation, open up God's word to bring it to bear on our lives. That's why we jump to 8.12. How's that for a sermon intro this morning, huh? So hopefully you found it now. Let me just read it here as we get kicked off this morning. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read through verse 30. It says this, follow along in your Bible. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And so the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, You are from below, I am from above, you are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, this is God's word for God's people. The text immediately preceding this, as we saw last week there at the end of chapter 7, there Jesus stood up amongst the crowd on the last day, the great day of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And as water was being poured upon the altar, uh, he there declared that if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And now on that same day, likely later that day in the temple treasury, just outside of the altar along the edges of the court of women, now Jesus brings to bear in his opening statement in this text to those gathered in us today, this fundamental truth that Jesus is our light to salvation. 
Write that down in your notes, for it is the central thing of this text, the central point that Jesus is making, the fundamental truth of the message today, that Jesus is our light to salvation. And as we have seen along the way in this Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, there are some uh, cultural things happening at that time that help to, uh, us to understand what Jesus is saying more vividly. As, as we see, so the, the Feast of Booths was instituted some 1,200 years before Jesus uh, in Leviticus 23. And as they would celebrate it over the years, they had added some rituals. They had added some festivities to this, uh, to this festival. Now, remember the, the festival, or the Feast of Booths, had become this Woodstock-like uh, atmosphere where all of Israel, or many in Israel, uh, the countless amount of people had migrated to Jerusalem for this eight-day celebration of sleeping and eating and, and, and uh, living in tents or booths or tabernacles, hence the, the name, where they were commemorating their deliverance from their Egyptian slavery and remembering those 40 years of wandering around in those booths and God's grace to persevere them uh, as he fed them and gave them water to drink and as he would lead them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and ultimately then his grace to bring them home to the promised land. They were remembering that in this annual uh, celebration. And so again, uh, some commentary will help us, I think. Kent Hughes has, uh, has given us some good color to understand another element of the feast, another uh, part of the festivities that were happening there and to really where this happens. And so we can kind of get a, a grip of it. Look at this, uh, uh, this, or this like rendition of the temple in Jesus' day, known as Herod's temple or the second temple. This is where they would have, have been there in the Holy of Holies, the big structure up in the like upper left, and then the outer uh, courtyard, the priest courtyard where the altar was, where they would have like poured the water and things. And then you have the, what was known as the women's courtyard, because that's as close as they could have got with some chambers there. And along the outside edge, uh, there were these trumpet-like uh, receptacles where they would put their money in. And so we uh, saw there in the passage, it said this is, it was in the treasury that Jesus is speaking about this. And so that outer court there, the women's courtyard, was also known as the treasury because that's where those trumpets were and where they would put their gifts as they would bring their uh, financial contributions to uh, the temple uh, out there. And so Jesus is there when he is teaching this, but something significant happened during the Feast of Booze that help us uh, understand this even more. Hear this uh, quotation. It says this, there were two great ceremonies during the Feast of Tabernacles. One, as we have seen, was the pouring out of water. That's what we saw last week when Jesus said, I, uh, the, uh, the river of, out of you will flow rivers of living water. The other was called uh, uh, illumination of the temple. Let me just start over. The other was called the illumination of the temple. It took place in the treasury at the beginning of the feast. It was a spectacular celebration, both in its concept and in its annual observance. In the center of the treasury, four great torches were set up. So picture that. They're out in that courtyard, these huge torches. Some accounts say that the torches were as high as the highest walls of the temple and that at the top of these golden candelabra were great bowls holding 65 liters of oil. There was a ladder for each candelabrum, and in the evening, young, healthy priests would carry the oil up to the top. You would have to be pretty young, healthy, and, and swole, right? The one, the priests that work out. 
where they would then light the protruding wicks. The great flames that leapt out of these torches illuminated the whole temple and much of Jerusalem. It was spectacular. And the Mishnah describes what happened after the torches were lit. Men of piety and good works used to dance before them with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and instruments of music. They would dance until dawn. It was an exotic festival celebrating the great pillar of fire that led the people of Israel during their sojourn in the wilderness. It was in this place, no doubt, with the charred torches still in place, that Jesus chose to raise his voice above the crowd and proclaim, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. End quote. Talk about a teachable moment, right? Talk about a poignant sermon illustration as you have these uh, lights here. Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. Just imagine even in our own room here, if I had the guys in the booth just turn off all the lights and we were sitting in here in uh, darkness and then, the, uh, uh, and then they turned on the, the lights all of a sudden. Now, we're not going to do that. I think that would discombobulate all of us uh, if we were to do that. But in this illustration, what is it that Jesus is saying about himself? I am your light to salvation and saying, I am the light of the world. This was a, a vivid expression of what they were celebrating. God leading the people of Israel by fire, by cloud while they were in those tents. And so as we understand, and as they were there remembering this event now, this, has, this, is just, uh, this is just full of meaning, full of meaning. And now maybe you're unfamiliar, like, wait, what is what was happening? What would they do here? What is this tent of fire all about? Let's go back and see it in its context. Turn over to Numbers 9 for a second. Keep your finger in John 8, but go to the beginning of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 9. Numbers is the account that we have of those 40 years of God's people wandering around in the wilderness and the events that happened there, the battles that they fought. And in chapter 9, beginning in verse 15, we find this account of what it was like to be led by this cloud and pillar of fire. Numbers 9, beginning in verse 15. Let me just read it here so you get the picture. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And you see why they get the, the name, right? And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. Then according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, and when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out, or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days, or a month, or a longer time, that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. 
At the command of the Lord, they camped, and at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. There you have it, right? As God, by his light, would lead them, they would go, they would stop. Whenever wherever God got up and moved, they got up and went. And whenever God stayed, they also got up. No. They stayed wherever the light of the Lord was leading them. This is what they are remembering. This is the festival then, the ritual that is happening now. And so when we come to Jesus' expression here of what he is saying now, it, it, it comes like it brightens up for us. We understand what it is that Jesus is calling them to. But it is not only just in, the, in, in what they are remembering or commemorating from their time in the wilderness. The, the illustration of Jesus as light or God as light is a frequent Old Testament. Testament expression. Psalm 27, 1 begins with, the Lord is our light and our salvation. Isaiah 49, verse 6 refers to the Messiah who we know as Jesus. Now that he would come, the rescuer would come as a light for the nations. Likewise, in Psalm 119, verse 105, we're told that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Jesus is claiming to be God with language that they would recognize. He, he, he uh, in, in the opening chapters of John's gospel, not just there, but uh, it, what we saw several months ago when we began in this book that John would refer to Jesus as the true light. And just hinting at what now we are getting further explanation about in chapter 8. Because you remember that, don't you? You remember all those names about Jesus in chapter 1 that were just like, like just listed out there. Lamb of God, Son of God, Son of Man, King of Israel. All these names that have been now explained and expounded upon as we have worked our way through. And now we come to this, what Jesus is claiming as the light. Because what does light do? Helps us see. We use the popular phrase even now. This sheds a little light on the situation. Jesus likewise helps us see the world. Helps us view our sin, the way to go, what is right. And ultimately, he leads us to salvation. He is the light of our salvation. And as we recognize that, it also comes with a command, a call to follow. I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me, just like they were called to follow him in the wilderness, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this leads us then to the first point of having life in his name is to follow him out of darkness and into the light of life. As he calls us to himself, as he calls us to walk in the light, it is one of following him out of darkness and into the light of life. Join me in this first little section here and let's just double click on it for a moment. See, Jesus stands up in the uh, temple treasury. He makes this startling claim that they uh, realize has massive implications. And just like we have encountered, this whole passage is like on repeat of what we have seen. It's just another uh, uh, trip around the carousel with the Pharisees. Jesus teaches, and guess what? 
There's discussion, division, opposition, uh, challenge, and antagonism to what he has to say. And, and particularly now that he's in the temple, for the temple was the Pharisees' playground. This was like headquarters for them, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of, the, of, the, of Israel. Their chamber was there in the priest's courtyard. And the Pharisees are there. They hear Jesus' claim, and they shoot it down as a self-claim. You see them? See, the, the Pharisees, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You can't just make claims about yourself, which isn't necessarily wrong. And they had a standard that came out of our Old Testament, a standard of judgment that every claim must be substantiated by at least two or three witnesses. You can't just say things about yourself and, and, and expect people to just believe it. You can't just make assertions without any sort of facts or evidence to back it up. And we've been down this road before, have we not? As we've walked through John's gospel, we've seen this over and over in chapter uh, 5, verses 30 to 46. Jesus gave those four witnesses about himself to, to substantiate his claim that he was sent from God. It's like, you want these witnesses? Here they all are. John the Baptist bore me witness. My own works bear witness. Who can do these miracles and these things that I'm doing? The Father's words at his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, bears him witness. And forth, you have the Word of God in the Old Testament that is all pointing to and fulfilled in, in, in Jesus. And so they, they have the evidence, and yet the Pharisees are like, you lie about yourself. Nobody can say these things about you. Only others can. Jesus is like, I know. I know these things, but let's just be straight. You don't know. The, you know, the irony remains here, as in all of it. They can't even get his birth origins uh, correct, let alone his spiritual origins. They can't get the fact of how he judges uh, in order. He's like, I don't judge according to the flesh. I don't judge according to your standards. I judge according to the Father's standards. I judge the heart. I judge who is saved and who is not. And, you know, I, 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 there are two witnesses here. The Father bears me witness and backs me up. And still they're, they're like hung up on, well, where's your father? You know, who's like, where is he? And they're, they're still hung up on his biological origins and it's not on his spiritual origins. It is an example of being in the dark. So I were just like going around aimlessly around the carousel over and over through these chapters, through these encounters here as Jesus is teaching. It's just another ride in the darkness around the carousel here. They are in the dark. Just like we all were. Just like all of us born uh, in our sin. All of us were in the darkness, groping about, looking for answers, unable to see anything until Jesus shone his light and summoned us out. Until he came proclaiming, I am the light of the world. I am your light to salvation. He brings us in gives us a new way of seeing. He gives us a new way of viewing him and viewing the world and viewing our, our, ourselves and, 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 and how we go about living our life. He calls us out of darkness into the light of light, walking according to his standards. And so here's, like, you know, as we, as we think about these things, okay, the Pharisees weren't all wrong in saying, well, you can't just make claims about yourself, right? You can't self-claim. And I know even in our world that we live in today, that's acceptable, you can make claims about yourself. You can be whoever you want to be. And yet even still, don't, don't buy it, right? 
In the darkness, people can say anything that they want. I'm a man trapped in a woman's body. I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I'm a cat. I'm whatever. You can make claims and assertions. But see, only Jesus can make claims like this about himself. That's why these claims, these, they're, they're statements of autonomy. They're statements of self-deity. I will be who I want to be, and I don't care how God has created me to be, and it's a rejection of the authority and creation of God. And, you know, while we're, um, let me just assure you, God made nobody wrong. There's nothing about you that was a mistake. Every one of us in here, every person born, uh, is created in the image of God. Man and woman, all humanity and as such is, is, is deserving of, of, of worth and dignity and love. And let us not trample upon what God has designed and called good by making claims about ourselves or walking according to in, in the darkness on these things. Because see, as we come to him in faith, it is a call out of darkness, out of that way of thinking, out of the absurdity of, of, of these claims, and it is a call into the light of life, where Jesus is the light, and then we, like the moon, glow with his light in the transformation. Like, how amazing is this? Uh, look, uh, Ephesians 5, verse 8, uh, describes it like this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. We're called out of it now to live in light. Or how about this? Jesus says this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. Now, time out on that one, right? So what did Jesus just say about himself? I am the light of the world. We're not the saviors, but we carry the Savior's light. You are the light of the world now. Now that you shine with Jesus' light, how does it continue on? A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." And see, he calls us into this uh, light of life, walking according to his way, saving us and then sending us into our neighborhoods, into our schools, into our workplaces to shine like lights in the dark world, to show people the hope and help and the transformation that Jesus has won and worked out in our lives, and to do so in a world that is both dark and also dying. See, the passage continues this. The, the, uh, Jesus shines his light onto this fact that we are all dead, and so we must follow him. Write this down. Follow him out of death and into eternal life. Christ is making sense of the world around us. The world's in darkness. The world is dying, and we are to follow him out of death and into eternal life. Now, as Coming to this passage, and we continue on here, really the whole passage, I think, could be titled, Things Only Jesus Can Say About Himself, right? Or statements that only God can make, claims that only God can make, right? I can bear witness about myself, none of y'all can, and only Jesus can really say, like, there's tons of them in here, but even at the very end of verse 29, how this ends, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him, referring to God. Who can say that? Any of us in here? Like, raise your hand, like, anybody bold enough to say, I always do the things that please God. 
Probably not. Only Jesus can. Oh, oh, only say it. And all these statements that he's making, they, and that's why the Pharisees are so mad. That's why that's, they, they know the implications of what he is saying, and, and it's driving them crazy. They don't want to believe it because they know that it's going to just undercut everything that they have put their faith in and the whole system that has been created here, and so they remain cantankerous. Because he also says here in, in, in verse 21, and going here, he's making some statements. He's saying, I'm going away, and you can't come. I'm going away. You're going to seek me in order to kill me, but you're going to die in your sin. And in verse 23, like, he's just going. He's like, I'm from above. You are from below. Whoa. I'm from heaven. You're straight out of the pit. I'm not of this world. I'm not here. All right, I'm, not, I'm not from here, but you are. You're from this sinful world. They don't want to believe it. It's like they're so, uh, they they just can't wrap their minds around it. Especially this this repeated phrase that you will die in your sins. He says in verse 21, and it's so ludicrous. They think that he's like talking about suicide. They're like, wait, are you going to kill yourself? Are you going to go? And the wrong beliefs about when you do so, it's the unforgivable sin and all this. Like, no, 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 that's not what he's talking about. In verse 24, he's like, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, repeat it again, you will die in your sin. Repetition for emphasis. This is absurd for them. And yet it is so gracious of God. Because even in the warning, the gracious warning that you will die in your sin, of just laying the cold, hard truth out there. Look at the invitation. Look at the way of salvation. The way of escape. Bracketed right there in verse 24. In between, you will die in your sins for unless... You believe that I am He. The lighted door open for any who will take it. Don't read this as like Jesus is like exasperated, you know, like a parent, like, if you don't do this, unless you do this, then you're going to. He's laying it out the reality of the terror of dying in your sin, of being separated from God and tormented forever. Unless you believe that Christ is your Savior, that He is the light of the world, that He is the Son of God, that He is your light to salvation. If you've never repented and believed, if that is you today, where you, like the Pharisees, have a multitude of questions here, the invitation, the command is that you believe that Jesus is who he is claiming to be. There's really two responses to this. There's just laid out for us in the text here. You can continue to play the game like the Pharisees continue just like, no, let's take another ride around the carousel here, right? Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? What do you mean, who are you? Now I'm irritated by it. Jesus isn't. Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. He's told them all from the get-go. He's told you from the get-go. What evidence do you need? What more, uh, what, what other, uh, you know, truth do you need explained? 
Reckon with the reality. Reckon with the facts. Judgment awaits all. He has much to judge. He judges what is true. He knows your heart. He knows my heart. You can keep playing the game, going around, asking the questions, or you can come to grips. As Jesus said, you can come to grips with the fact that Jesus was lifted up on the cross as the Son of Man to die for your sin in your place. And you can believe it to eternal life. That he was lifted up, as in verse 28, he's like, you'll understand, this will make way more sense in in just a a few months after this is happening, when he will actually be crucified, when he will be lifted up on that cross as the Son of Man, that uh, Daniel 7 uh, reference to the one who has authority over all creation, where he will be lifted up to die, just as... God had uh, told him, just as God had sent him to do, just as God had, uh, the Father has ta- sent him to speak about. You can keep playing the game or come to grips with Jesus is who he says he is. Savior. As a matter of fact, the whole section of Scripture here shows us just the gospel basics, the things that we must believe about Jesus in order to be saved, the things that the Pharisees are hung up on or claiming not to know. They ask the question, well, where, where are you from in, in, in verse 14? And Jesus, he just he's, he's the creator. He's from heaven. He's the one who made you. That's where he came from. That's where he was sent. Well, where is your father? Well, his father is God, and Jesus is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, sent from heaven, our creator. Well, where is he going in verse 21? He's going back to heaven to rule and reign on the Father's throne, to be sovereign over all the affairs of your life and the whole entire world. Well, why do we deserve to die in our sin? Because our sin has offended God. And how do, we, how do we get over that offense? It's, well, we need somebody to atone. Somebody needs to die in our place. And Jesus was the one who did that as the Lamb of God. Who is Jesus? Verse 25, he's the Son of Man that will be lifted up on the cross to die. Your question here, who are you? This is the very question that has been being answered every single passage in John's gospel. And it's what Jesus has been telling them from the beginning. He's been telling you from the beginning. Maybe this is completely new to you, and this is the first you're hearing about it. You've been hearing it from the beginning of the message. He is the Son of God if they would just listen and believe. If you would just listen and believe. That Jesus is the light of salvation, the true light. And what's glorious is Jesus speaking in this verse 30, where many speak and many, or Jesus speaks and many believe. Do you believe? See, there are many people, many theories that exist out there that shed light on uh, your life that shed light on your situation, that uh, offer good advice and helpful things. But only Jesus is the light of the world. Only Jesus is the true light. Only Jesus is full of wisdom. Only His radiance will one day illumine all of His creation. His wisdom makes a sense of all that we know in our life. His work both past and yet to come, is the end and fulfillment of all things. 
And it's this word that Jesus could stand up and boldly proclaim about himself like only he can do. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And we can believe this word that we have in our hands, his word, shows us how we can live then boldly because of who Jesus is. That's the message. That's his declaration. That's his command to follow him. Let's pray now and let's sing to him with all that we have. God in heaven, here we are. Acknowledging first and foremost that you are the light. Telling you, acknowledging that you, Jesus, are the light of the world. And maybe we just need to acknowledge it afresh today in light of our circumstances. Maybe we're acknowledging it for the first time now. Coming to you in repentance and faith where you, Jesus, are shining your light. We also believe it. Would you convince us of it more uh, deeply? Would we be convicted by these truths, Lord? To walk with you, God. But we also need your help, Lord. We need your light to, to help us make sense. We need your light in the situation that maybe awaits us as soon as church is over. We need your light to help us, God, as we head out into this week, Lord. As the season changes and summer is upon us now. And so we need your help to worship you, Jesus. To properly lift you high, to adore your name. To make much of you, Jesus. Thank you, God. We sing out with all that we have. In Jesus' name.